0: And once again, good evening and welcome to our Good Friday service. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John 19? And uh, we will be bouncing around a lot tonight, so you might want to just write the addresses down, look them up later. But we'll start in John 19. And tonight we're going to read verses 17 and 18. And he, of course, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the Place of the Skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha, if you're interested in the Latin, it's Calvary, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. I'm calling this message The Three Crosses of Calvary. The Three Crosses of Calvary. Uh, Mount Calvary, also known as Mount Moriah, was the place prophesied way back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, as the mount where God would someday offer his son for the sin of the world. Furthermore, Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be numbered with sinners or criminals in his death, something that Mark quoted from Isaiah in his gospel when he said Mark 15, with him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Each of the Gospels report that two others were crucified at the same time with Jesus that day. Although only Matthew, Mark, and Luke call them robbers. The word "robbers" is the same word that was used for Barabbas. In the Greek it's taste <laughs> and it means more than a thief. You don't have to turn there, but in Mark 15, verse 7, we read, And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. These were more than just thieves. One commentator said, and I quote, The word refers to what we would call a guerrilla soldier or a revolutionary and probably suggests that those who were crucified along with Jesus were Barabbas' companions. This is more than likely because stealing in Rome, the Roman government, was not a capital offense. Was Barabbas intended for the cross in the center? Probably, end quote. Now, during Jesus' lifetime, historians estimate that more than 30,000 criminals were crucified by the Roman government, but on this day, on this mount, there were only three, the Son of God, and listen, two sons of Adam, two sons of Adam. See, the Bible says that all who are born of Adam will die, die physically and, and eternally, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Every one of us born into this world physically are descendants of Adam. And uh, we are born into this world with a blood curse upon us that was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden many centuries ago. And the only way to escape the judgment or the curse uh, that resides in the family of Adam is, well, to be born again into a new family. Now, for many of you in this room, that's an exciting concept. Uh, You know, the old saying, you know, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. It's not really true in Christianity, although we love them. But um, the only way to escape Judgment, or the curse that has been put on the family of Adam, Adam and all of his descendants, is to be born into a new family, the family of God. Turn to John chapter 3. I know this is familiar territory, but let's read it anyways. Because really, Jesus talks about the two families, all right? He said in John chapter 3, starting with verse 5, and he's speaking to a hyper-religious man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, but a good guy. I mean, not all the Pharisees were hypocrites. I mean, there were some really sincere uh, Pharisees, and and Nicodemus was one of them. But uh, he comes to Jesus by night, and then Jesus engages him in this conversation. And um, at one point in verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, physical birth, obviously. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit, the new birth, the spiritual birth. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jump down to verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him." Those are the two families. Every one of us born into this world physically is born into the family of Adam. We all bear a blood curse. We are all under the judgment of God. The wrath of God abides on all of us. And the only way to escape coming judgment is to be born into a new family, the family of God. So. And I want you to be sensitive to how the Holy Spirit is framing this whole thing, all right? Uh, That's why I call these two criminals sons of Adam. They are, but you see that there's much more in view than just these two men being crucified on either side of Christ 2,000 years ago. And so we see these two sons of Adam, they were dying for their sins in the presence of the Son of God. And yet, listen, initially they mocked and reviled him. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, we read, Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him. Skipping down to verse 44, Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him. Guys, these two men represent all of fallen, condemned humanity dying for their sins and yet mocking the God who made them who loved them and who at that very moment was giving his life for them it's amazing how many people in our culture you know sons and daughters of Adam who are dying in their sins condemned to spend eternity in hell yet they still want to mock and revile the one who gave his life for them that they might be saved absolutely amazing we see this exemplified primarily In the first thief on the cross, let's call his cross the cross of rejection, the cross of rejection. Luke 23, you want to turn there and hold your finger in there because that's going to be kind of the primary scripture we'll be looking at, uh, although we'll jump around some more, but keep your finger there. Luke 23, looking at this first thief calling his cross the cross of rejection. We read in Luke 23, verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. In the Greek it says that he kept saying, aren't you supposed to be the Christ, the Messiah? If so, save yourself and us. Or in other words, prove it. Prove it. You know, it's very interesting that most Hardened sinners don't pray, don't want to pray until they really need something from God. But even then, there's often no humility or brokenness in their prayers. Instead, maybe you've come across people like that. Instead, there's a, a tone of mocking sarcasm where they're almost challenging God to prove he's God by fulfilling their request. It kind of goes something like this. If you're really up there, God, okay, prove it by getting me out of this problem. Otherwise you're just a figment of the imagination, a phony, a fraud, a false guy. Once again we hear this sarcastic taunting even back as far as Jesus' day as the crowd in general was uh, taunting Jesus as He hung on the cross that day. Back in Matthew 27 we read once again, and those who passed by blasphemed Him, wagging their heads and saying, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Well, if He did, none of us could be saved. All right. But come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself He cannot save. If He is the King of Israel, the Messiah, let Him now come down from the cross, and we will believe Him. Verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with Him reviled Him with the same thing. You know, when an unbeliever demands proof from God that He is really who He claims to be, that's blasphemy. You know why? Why? Because God has told us who he is in his word. But they're saying, your word doesn't mean anything to me. Your word can't be trusted. All right? I know what the Bible says. I don't accept that. So you, need to, you need to prove to me with some kind of supernatural display of power that you're really up there and that you're real. God says he puts his word even above his name. And when people reject God's word, when they mock it, when they, when they put it down, And they say, I won't believe based on what the Bible says, even though the Bible has been proven to be God's word through many infallible proofs, not the least of which is prophecy. But when they do that, they're mocking God's word and basically saying, unless you show me through some fantastic display of power, a a dramatic healing or some kind of a miracle, I'm not going to believe. I want you to further notice, guys, that this thief wanted to be saved from the penalty of his sins. Listen, <laughs> but he offered no admission of his guilt and no repentance for his actions. I think the only sorrow we had that day was the sorrow that came from the fact that he got caught and now to suffer the consequences of his actions. Not that he was really sorry for the actions themselves. Not that he was really sorry for anything he had actually done. He was sorry he got caught. That's what the Bible calls worldly sorrow, regret. Every every criminal in prison tonight is sorry that they got caught, that they're in prison. You let them out, most of those guys, recidivism rate is incredible. They'll go right back to what they were doing because it's a worldly sorrow. And uh, we know, as Paul the Apostle said in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So if a person just feels bad about what they've done, but really, you know, or or just sorry for the consequences brought into their life, but has no real desire to change anything, uh, that kind of sorrow gets them nowhere. It doesn't lead to repentance. Repentance. And repentance is essential for forgiveness and eventually salvation. The words of Paul are very relevant, especially in the light of all we're learning tonight. He said in Galatians 6, verses 6 and uh, 7 and 8, he said, Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he, he who sows to his flesh, who lives for the flesh and for the base desires, of his flesh, will of the flesh reap corruption, judgment. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Guys, the thief on the cross of rejection was reaping what he had sown in life, and guess what? He didn't like it. He didn't like it. You know, most people want to live in sin and rebellion with impunity, okay, with impunity. And when their spouse or their boss or society in general or God in particular, tries to hold them accountable for the actions of their lives, those things that were contrary to all God said was good and right, well, they don't like it. They somehow feel like they're getting unfairly treated um, because they're being held accountable for what they have done. I mean, this criminal seems to think that if Jesus wants him to believe in him, if Jesus wants me to believe in him, then he better come through and uh, get me out of this mess. A mess that I might remind you once again, he had brought upon himself. He was reaping what he had sown, right? I mean, it seems to be the mentality of a good number of people in our society. You know, they say, if God wants me to believe in him, he better come through for me or else. Better come through for me and give me what I want. Or else, or else what? Or else I won't believe in him. Oh, well, you think you're doing God a favor? By believing in his son who died for your sins that you might go to, you think you're doing God a favor? I mean, it's almost humorous because apparently what these people don't seem to realize is that God doesn't need them, they need God. Now, God loves him with all his heart. He gave his son to die for them, to prove his love. But there's a mentality today that if God doesn't perform for me the way I want, answer my prayers, heal this or do that or whatever it might be, then I'm not going to believe in him. And I remind them gently, and I do say gently, let me just let you in on this. God doesn't need you. He loves you. He's inviting you to be a member of his family. But he doesn't need you. You need him. And by you saying, if God doesn't do what I want, if he doesn't heal my sick wife or my, my child, or those are important things. But I've seen people make those the test of their faith in God, that he has to come through in a certain way and, and, and answer uh, a prayer that they really feel strongly about. And if he doesn't do it, then that's it. I'm done with God. Well, sorry to hear that. Um, on the day of judgment, when you stand before him, That will be a real sad time to realize, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been done with God. Maybe I should have, you know, stopped trying to make God my servant and bow the knee to him as my Lord and Savior. Hey, guys, the bottom line was that this thief had pride. As the Bible declares, pride goes before destruction and that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so here on the cross of rejection hung an unrepentant, listen, an unrepentant, proud unbeliever who had no guilt or shame for how he had lived or for anything he had done. And sadly, he died in his sins. Didn't have to be. Sadly, he died in his sins. On the other side of Jesus that day was another rebel who was paying for his crimes and dying for his sins. He too initially mocked. Jesus, but then something happened, at one point he had a change of heart, Luke 23, verse 40, but the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Guys, this thief exemplifies all the lost sinners of this world, all the sons and daughters of Adam, who are condemned in their sins, and who maybe initially even mocked God at one point in their life, didn't want anything to do with his son, but then they had a change of heart. And they wound up receiving Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Let's call this thief's cross the cross of reception. The cross of reception. I want you to notice a few things about this thief as he hung on that cross that day. First of all, listen, he feared God. He feared God. He rebuked his comrade by saying, Don't you, Do you not even fear God? Implying that he himself did fear God. Now, Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He also said the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now listen, evil is defined by the holy God of heaven. Not evil is defined by sinful fallen man. Because today, anything goes. You can't find anybody who thinks that something isn't righteous and not sin. Some people don't even talk about sin. They've written it off. There is no sin. Whatever's right for you, it's okay. You know, the truth is relative, right? I mean, so your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. What I don't think is right for me might be right for you. Who am I to judge you? Well, that's true. If we only had opinions to go by, then everyone's opinion would be valid. Nobody's opinion would be above another person's opinion. But you see, God doesn't let us compare opinions To justify how we live, he's given us commandments. The ones that come to my mind are the ten, with a capital T, the ten biggies, all right? The ten, not the ten suggestions, the ten commandments. That is God's holy, righteous, absolute truth standard. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. But listen to me, guys. The fear of the Lord primarily finds its ultimate meaning in the fear of consequences for violating God's righteous laws. You know, the Bible says the reason people live wicked lives is because, listen, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36, verse 1. In other words, the reason they live lives of wickedness and rebellion is because they don't believe a day of judgment is coming. They don't believe that they will have to stand before a holy God someday and give an account for how they live their lives on the earth. And so because there is no fear of coming judgment for how they're living, well, they're emboldened to live any way they want. That is very unwise because as Solomon said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's to hate evil. It's wise because it's always wise to obey God as opposed to not obeying him because there is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of reckoning where every person will stand before a holy God and will be judged. Now, if you're in Christ, you won't be judged with the wicked. If you've received Christ, then he paid your penalty. Your ledger is marked, paid in full, written by the blood of Christ. But if you have not received Christ, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a a holy God, the Bible says, apart from Christ. You can read Revelation 20, how the unbelievers stand before the God of the whole universe, the righteous judge of all the earth, and the books are opened, and they're judged out of the books. The first book is the Word of God. And the second book is the ledger that shows how many times a person violates or violated the word of God. And God keeps excellent records. Every thought contrary to what he has said, every deed, every action, unbelievers will be held accountable for in the day of judgment. That's why it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God apart from Christ. I don't want to stay. I believe I'm a good person. And when I stand before God, I'll let him know all the good things I've done and I'm sure he'll let me into heaven. Okay, well, I would encourage you to get yourself a pair of asbestos jammies because you're going to be spending a long time. I heard a woman say one time who was mocking God, mocking Christianity, and she said, you know, in a very cocky, uh, arrogant way, "I don't go to church. i like to come home and spend a few hours soaking in my hot tub. And I thought, keep it up. You're going to be spending an awful long time soaking in a very big hot tub called the Lake of Fire. I didn't say that to her, I mean, you know. but I was thinking it. Sometimes you will say something like that to her. I just didn't think that time was right. But Wow. But this second thief, guys, has a change of heart. Initially, he starts out mocking the Lord, reviling him. Hey, look, every one of us started out in life mocking God, not maybe verbally, but with our lives. We lived any way we wanted. We didn't think God was going to hold it against us or whatever. We thought in spite of all that we did that was wrong, we're still a good person. The Bible says, every Proverbs 20, verse 6, I think, Everybody, pretty much everybody proclaims each his own goodness. We all think we're good people. Now, I don't know where we get that from. God never told us we were good people. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what God says, but, you know, that's what we believe in the world. But at one point, this man has a change of heart, and uh, we see it in the fact that he acknowledges that he and his buddy, they're dying with him, that they did live lives of evil and rebellion against the laws of God and the laws of society, Roman society, Uh, and as such that they deserve the punishment they receive. Verse 41, Luke's Gospel, 23. He confessed his sins. you. that's where he, he's confessing his sins. And it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse, 19, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guys, listen. I'm not saying he was saved at this moment. I'm just saying he's working towards it. He's on the right track. Okay. He's confessing that he's a sinner. Look, no one can be saved who first doesn't confess that they're a sinner, guilty of violating God's laws, and therefore worthy of punishment or judgment. The person who says, I'm a good person. God will let me into heaven. No. Because the very fact that you think you're a good person and you stick out your chest and put the thumbs under the suspenders and go, well, I'm a good person. I'll show God. I'll tell him how many good things. Sure, he'll let me into heaven. God has got the biggest jumbotron in heaven you ever saw. And, and your whole life will be played. Gabriel, let's play the tape. And, 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 you know, you think you're a good person, and all of a sudden, everything you ever thought was, that was evil or did or said, it's right there. And that's why the Bible says every mouth will be what? Silenced. Because everyone will know they are guilty. Too late by that time to do anything about it. Today's the day of salvation, Right? This man confessed his sins. He acknowledged he was a sinner. The other thief didn't. I see no humility, no brokenness, no contrition on the part of the other thief on the other cross, the cross of rejection. But this thief, he did all of that. He he seems to manifest here, I know he does, godly sorrow, which led him to repentance. Again, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 but also at the same time that he acknowledges his own sinfulness, he declares Christ's righteousness. He's innocent. He said in verse 41, look to his friend, we are getting what we deserve for the wrong we have done, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now guys, I don't think I'm reading into this too much. I'll share with you what I think he's saying. I believe that he is saying By saying this, he was affirming the sinless perfection of Christ and therefore acknowledging his divinity. For anybody to be perfect, they have to be God. And didn't Jesus say that in Matthew 19? There is no one good but God. God defines goodness as moral perfection. Nobody's morally perfect except God. I believe he was making a profession of faith. That he believed Jesus was sinless and therefore was in fact the Son of God. Look, I think the Holy Spirit is laying out for us in the simple, ter- simplest terms possible the steps of somebody getting saved. There was only one step left before this man crossed over from spiritual death to life, from the family of Adam to the family of God, and praise God, he did it. He turned to Jesus and said in verse 42, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom now again calling jesus lord was acknowledging his divinity that's true but that wasn't enough and here i see because he acknowledged his divinity earlier as we just said he believed jesus was the sinless son of god but now he says lord remember me when you come into your kingdom not only was he acknowledging jesus divinity by calling him lord but listen this time he personalized it My Lord is the idea. My Lord is the idea. Guys, it's one thing for a person to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for their sins. But that doesn't mean they're automatically going to heaven because they believe that. The Bible says even the devil and his demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead bodily the third. They were there to see it. But they're not going to heaven. Because just giving mental assent to the facts about Christ, well, that's where faith begins, but that's not where saving faith really manifests itself. You have to personalize it. You have to bring it into your heart and say, I believe not only that Jesus is the son of God who died for my sins and rose again, but now I receive him as my savior, my Lord. And how do I know if I've really done that? Guys, the key is obedience. Obedience. Listen, Luke 6 46, Jesus said to a group of would-be disciples. He had a lot of groupies. Some of them were genuine disciples. Some of them were just followers that were thrill-seekers. Yeah, hang around Jesus. You get to watch him put the Pharisees down. That's fun. Scribes and sheep. Oh, he gives it to them, boy. They they walk away with their tail between. I love it. You get to see him heal people, work miracles. Best show in town. Well... Jesus turned to a group of these would-be disciples one day in Luke 6.46 and said, You know, why do you call me Lord, Lord? But yet don't do the things that I tell you. Some people use the word Lord as a as a name. It's really a title. The title for the person that you've given control of your life to. He's your master. He's your Lord. When you've given Jesus control, when you stop calling him Lord as a name, and start calling him Lord as a title, the one you've given your life to, control of your life to, the result is obedience. Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they what? Follow me. They obey me. I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them or snatch them out of my hand. Guys, this man confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in his heart that he would be raised from the dead someday. So, well, you're reading an awful lot into this. He said, Lord, remember me when you come, what, into your kingdom. To establish a kingdom, he had to be, come back to life again. I mean, I don't think I'm reading too much between the lines here. I know I'm not because Jesus knew what he was saying. Jesus knew his faith was being expressed and Jesus in just a second pronounced him saved. But here's the thing. He believed, he confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in his heart that God would raise him from the dead to establish the kingdom. The very thing Paul the Apostle said was necessary to have eternal life. Remember what he said in Romans 10 verse 9? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what this guy did. And so in Luke 23, verse verse 43, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. That was Jesus' declaration. This guy expressed saving faith. The Lord Jesus honored it and was declaring him saved. Someone who would live in paradise with the Lord forever. And that, guys, brings us to the third cross that we want to consider tonight, just briefly. The cross that Jesus died on. Let's call it the cross of redemption the cross of redemption the word redemption literally means to buy back or to purchase out of slavery to purchase out of slavery you know when adam and eve fell in the garden of eden at that moment they and all their descendants who would ever be born after them from them would be born the slaves of satan and sin Helpless to change that reality. And doomed to spend eternity separated from God in hell. That was the predicament. You know, we call the word gospel literally means good news. But for people to really understand how good that news is, you have to see it against the backdrop of the bad news. The bad news is when our forefather and mother in the Garden of Eden blew it, they fell, and every one of us born after them, from them, has been born fallen sinners. Slaves of Satan and sin, doomed to spend eternity in hell, and there was nothing we could do to climb out of that judgment. Nothing we could do. Even as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, Nicodemus, you're a very religious guy, but nobody, not even guys like you, can ascend into heaven by your good works. That's why the Son of Man, Son of God, came down. We couldn't Reach where he was through our good works because we were fallen sinners. So he came down and became one of us. He condescended, the term is. He stooped down to raise us up through his death and sacrifice. I'll just read these to you. John three sixteen. <laughs> Hopefully you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not have to perish in hell but would have everlasting life. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Peter said, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. The blood of Christ. The only thing that could save us. Redeem us. Colossians 1, 14, In whom? In Jesus. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so there you have the three crosses of Calvary, the cross of rejection, the cross of reception, and the cross of redemption. Those three crosses, guys, and in particular, the three men that died on them allegorically encompass all of humanity. Of course, Jesus is unique among men. He is the central figure of humanity, God in human form, without whom, well, there can be no redemption, no forgiveness of sin, and no eternal life. Again, in John 3, Jesus said in verses 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, listen, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And goes on to say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life, not to go to hell. Jesus said, and I'll paraphrase, if I don't go to the cross, if I am not lifted up, there can be no salvation. It is a must thing because sinners cannot die for sinners. The blood of the guilty cannot redeem the guilty. It would take the blood of the innocent, the perfect, the sinless, to redeem the guilty. Jesus Christ was and is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell, but have eternal life. So guys, let me just ask you in closing, what side of Jesus are you on? Which side of the cross of redemption are you on tonight? Look, because of Adam's sin, we're all dying physically. We're all dying physically. The cross speaks of death. But your eternal destiny will depend upon which cross you are on when you die. When you die. The cross of rejection or the cross of reception. Of course, the difference is the difference between heaven or hell. Eternal life with God or eternal condemnation and separation from God. It's interesting how Jesus used similar language in, in Matthew 25. Let me just read it to you, all right? Uh, in Matthew 25, we read, Then the king, Jesus, will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And in verse 46, he said, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All depends on what side of the cross you're on, all right? The cross of rejection or the cross of reception. Look, we're done, but I could have named this message, Three Crosses, Two Destinies, One Way. I almost did, but I figured, well, I can throw it in at the end. <laughs> and I'm not going to develop a whole nother message based on that title, but, but, you know, think about it. Three crosses, two destinies, there's two sinners, one Savior, one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And, of course, that would dovetail with the two roads we read in Matthew 7, the broad way and the narrow way. Two lead to two destinies. Eternal life in heaven, the narrow way, Jesus is the way, or the Broadway, the way of the world. The world's very much into religion, aren't they? Because the world wants a tolerant faith. The world doesn't want to judge. So the world believes in God, many people. But theirs is a God of tolerance. A God who never would judge anybody, never send anybody to hell. He's a God of love. It's the Broadway, isn't it? Easy. It's tolerant, It's accepting problem is it leads to destruction it leads to hell Jesus said the narrow way is a way that few people find not because it's hidden but because it requires the cross it requires you to give up your own desires and your own goals and doing your own thing to follow Jesus as your master and savior he'll give you the grace to do that but you gotta want to Salvation starts in the heart. Am I willing? Am I willing to confess my sins? Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. All right, I'm not as bad as some, I know, but I'm, I'm still a sinner. I've done bad things. I've lived my life in a way where I know I have dishonored you, violated every one of your commandments, practically, if not literally in my heart I've hated, which is tantamount to murder. I've lusted, which is tantamount to adultery. Lord, I give you my life. Please come in and take over. Be my my living Savior and Lord. And when you do that, a wonderful thing happens. You become a new creation. You move from death to life. The wrath of God no longer abides on you. Now the grace of God, the blessings of God abide on you because you're not a son or daughter of Adam anymore. You're a child of God. Why would anybody turn down that offer? What they do every day. I hope nobody in this room will do it. Today is the day of salvation. If you haven't given your hearts to Christ, this is it, guys. This is the day. May God give you the grace to make the right choice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, well, the most important person on Calvary's Hill that day, the Lord Jesus Christ the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who died for me and for everyone in this room. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I just pray for everybody in this room, everybody who will hear this message somehow online or on the radio Sunday, that, Lord, if right now they are mocking you like the thief on the cross of rejection, they've rejected you even though their life is Unraveling, sin has taken its toll the good news is Lord it's never too late that thief only had an hour or two to live on this earth and the one received you and was saved we thank you for his conversion Lord because it gives hope to everybody who has ever had a deathbed conversion if they were sincere you honored it and so Lord give us the grace now to live for you that we might be a light in this dark world. Father, we thank you for your tremendous love that gave your Son, and Jesus, for your tremendous love that laid down your life freely for the sheep. The Holy Spirit, for your tremendous love for living inside of us, taking care of us, leading us, we just thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us. We just thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.